Well, we have come to week four of our series entitled Creed, which um, means we've been working through an ancient confession or uh, a creed um, that the early church has recited for many, many generations. Let me read it for you in its fullness, then I will show you the part where we're going to focus on today. I guess, well, before I read, let me put this confession in this right context. We're going through the Apostles' Creed as to direct our teaching and our worship, but to be a Christian, you need to believe far more than what is condensed in the Apostles' Creed. Just, I mean, it's not our authority, it's just a confession. But you certainly cannot believe less than what is contained in here. So last week, it was, it was Resurrection Sunday, so we landed on the third day he rose again from the dead, and now we will see what happens after Jesus is raised from the dead. So I will read the creed in its entirety, and then we'll continue. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, the section we're going to be looking through this morning, in accordance with the word of God, back and forth, begins at, he ascended to heaven, to the final amen. Now, as a disclaimer, we're not going to go line by line and teach through each individual line that's in this creed. We're going to mainly touch on two big points, and I think the rest of it kind of folds in on its own. So if you think about the life of Jesus, if you were to write a novel about this. If you're, you know, we have the Bible. I'm not saying there's another novel that exists. If you were to write a book about the person of Jesus, for many people, knowing the story, Easter Sunday would be the final Sunday. That'd be the final chapter. That would be the, the climactic moment. However, the resurrection of Jesus is not the final chapter of his life, and it's not the final event of his life, because there are a few more significant events which comes after Jesus is raised from the dead. These events are the ascension of Jesus, so him going up into heaven, and then his second coming. So here's where we're headed today. We're going to look at two outcomes, two two outcomes of the ascension, what happens when Jesus is ascended into heaven from there on, and then we're going to discover how the ascension of Jesus provides the power and the promise we need, the Christian needs, in order to live day after day. So the ascension is a major event that happened in his life. The Bible records that Jesus was raised from the dead and uh, up to 500 people or more saw him alive. He ate with people. He taught, with, he taught people. He visited people. He gave instructions to his followers. And then as Ken read to us, he ascended into heaven. So let me give you the big idea of the sermon this morning. The ascension of Jesus is what provides Christ, the Christian with power and promise. With power and promise. So... Uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I'm just going to reread it for you. And when he had said these things, that's Jesus, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So point number one. The power is found in the helper. 
the helper. And here's what I mean by this. The ascension is significant because the Holy Spirit does not come down unless Jesus goes up. We never received, we never received the Holy Spirit if Jesus does not ascend into heaven. And even Jesus himself said this to his followers. There is a book called the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book of your New Testament. And in the chapter 16, he tells them, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So this is part of the plan of God to send God the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, into the life of the believer. And this is why the creed says, we believe in the Holy Spirit. The teaching of the Holy Spirit often leaves us confused. And many people often twist the teaching of the Holy Spirit, which leaves a lot of people confused. Uh, They confuse his role within the Trinity and within the Christian life and practice. Although some of the teaching of the Holy Spirit is a mystery, and I think we would all agree to that, the more you read the Bible, the more that you have to have a deep appreciation for mystery when you read the Bible. There's really no reason to be confused about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is our helper. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit will guide our thoughts, our actions, and our motives. The Holy Spirit illuminates the beauty and the power of the gospel, the good news that God has sent his son into the world to pay our debt of sin and that through our faith and belief in him, we may receive life. That's the gospel. That is the good news. He heightens our worship. He is our confidence as we follow Jesus in this world. And so I think we're going to stick with this Holy Spirit. Not I think, I know, because I already wrote it down. We're going to stick right here with the Holy Spirit for just a little bit longer, because I'm going to give us four ways that the Holy Spirit is active in our lives as a Christian. So if you desire to learn more about this, I'm going to, these next little section of the sermon is taken from John chapter 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus taught pretty deeply about the Holy Spirit. John 14, 15, and 16, you can read those chapters this week. Um, This is where we see Jesus teaching his followers about the Holy Spirit. And so now let me give you a bit of context. Jesus is preparing to be crucified. And so he leaves his disciples with some final words of comfort. Comfort, because he knew. He knew they'd be confused. He knew they'd be hurt. And he knew that they'd be troubled about his death. So he leaves them and he instructs them with the truth and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And... Therefore, by leaving them, what the Holy Spirit's role is in their lives. And so these three chapters describes the Holy Spirit as the one who abides, the one who teaches, the one who testifies, and the one who bears truth. We believe in the Holy Spirit who abides, who teaches, who testifies, and who bears truth. So first, the Holy Spirit abides in us. The Holy Spirit abides in us. In short, the Holy Spirit abides lives and dwells every believer. You are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, 16 verse 17 says this, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he indwells, he dwells with you and will be in you. Well, church, this means that the, the full presence of God is among us and in us. The Holy Spirit restores our hope and secures our faith. Even when the enemy comes to condemn and attack, which he does, amen? Even when the enemy reminds me of, and you of who you were before salvation, 
Even when the enemy comes to heap on the shame and the guilt that existed before your faith and belief, the Holy Spirit is still there. The abiding spirit is how the church withstands the attacks of this enemy and the attacks of the world, those who do not believe. It explains how the gospel, the good news, will extend to the end of the earth because it's not by our power, it's by the Holy Spirit's power. Also, this abiding Holy Spirit explains how we can hear the words of the Bible as the very words of God, not words of mere men. Some of you have friends or family, neighbors who who think, yeah, Christianity is great for you. I'm glad that you have faith and belief in something. I just cannot square how you read that old ancient book and do exactly as it says. That's a burden for me. That's a stumbling block for me. And you say, ha, I know, apart from the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't believe a word this thing says. The Holy Spirit reveals the truth of God's word to us. So we stand in confidence, confidence on the word of God, that it is the very word of God to us. And here's the best part. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit as an abiding, indwelling presence forever. This means the Holy Spirit is not present only in times of difficulty. This means the Spirit does not run away when you struggle with sin, when you fail yet again and again, day after day, week after week, because there are no perfect people. And if you are, you're wrong. I was going to say something different, but that was... I don't know what else to say. This means the Spirit does not run away when you struggle with sin. The presence of the Holy Spirit is not determined upon your level of obedience or efforts or the calling placed on your life. The presence of the Holy Spirit rests upon the grace and love of God for you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And God the Father knows that without the Holy Spirit, we are dead and we will just simply perish. We have an indwelling, abiding communion with God through the Holy Spirit. Second, the Spirit teaches. The Spirit abides in us. The Spirit teaches us. John 14. It says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Oh, this means the Christian life is one of constant learning always learning. And some of you tell me over and over again, John, I just don't like reading. Well, unless you've got a whole pile of audiobooks, you don't like being a Christian. And I know that's a little forceful, but we learn as Christians, we read the Word of God. I mean, if you don't like reading, therefore you're never reading the Bible, therefore you don't know who God is. Because we want to know who He is, we go to His Word. We're always learning. So I would challenge you start today in some small way, read something. It's this thing where people used to open up books and they go page after page. And if you get a physical book, you can highlight it and you can circle and do all sorts of fancy stuff in there. And the Christian life is of a constant learning. We are called to learn what the God said, uh, what God has said through his word. And more than this, we should desire to know what God has said through his word. We should desire this because his word is life. It's the confession of Peter. When Jesus says, are you guys all going to turn away and run from me too? What does Peter say? <laughs> Jesus, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where are we supposed to go? This is, this is our life. His word is our foundation. His word is for our benefit. You see, God will save you exactly where you are at. This is true. 
coming in these doors this morning, if you know nothing about Jesus Christ and you hear the good news of the gospel for the first time and you say, I want to be a Christian, I want to follow Jesus, I believe in that, I have faith in that, that's me, I'm in, God will save you. That's what the Bible promises. But God loves you enough to not keep you the same person as you walk through those doors. This is why we mature in our faith and we follow Jesus. And by the grace of God, we are who we are as we walk with him and meditate on his word and pray and turn from our sin and embrace him. You see, God has called his people to be holy as he is holy. It's a high calling, I know. And you fail and I fail. I've failed already today plenty of times. But we are called to be holy as he is holy. Therefore, we are to approach the word of God expecting the spirit of God to teach us more and more about Jesus, about salvation, about our sin, about his grace, and everything in between. Well, what do you, what do you mean, John? What's everything in between? Well, simple things like if you want to build meaningful relationships, the word in God has, has something to say about this. The word of God has something to say about your marriage, how you treat one another, how you talk to one another, how you think of one another, about your dating relationships, about your parenting, about your grandparenting, or your pre-parenting. Those who are ready or, you know, those who are thinking about getting into the parenting game, you know, you, you get, there's some stuff in here for you to learn before you parent. Don't worry, you'll screw it up. Just believe me. Screwed up a lot. If you desire to have a fruitful career or a fruitful job, the word of God says something about becoming an honorable employee. If you desire to wake up feeling more hopeful and joyful than, you, the, than yesterday, the word of God has something to say about this. If the way you have handled money in the past has left you depressed or anxious, the word of God has something to say about how we handle and steward money, how we handle and steward our time our energy, our knowledge. If you cannot seem to stop looking at that which you should not be looking at, the word of God has something to say to you as well. You see, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. The Holy Spirit always points us to the word of God. One last example. This is really important for us. as a young church, just under three years old. Teaching is such an important role of the Holy Spirit because without faithful teaching, the church would be destroyed by false teachers, liars, those who Jesus would call sheep, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, those who would take the Bible and twist it for their own gain, their own power, and their own influence. And as a young church, we must be on guard. No matter who says what they say, whether it be from here or down there or anywhere, we must square it with what the Bible says. Holy Spirit teaches us and protects us from false teachers. Matthew chapter 4, and Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. How true is this? You see, we were not created to simply, uh, you know, search for food for our bellies so we would not die. We were not meant to live out our days searching only for that food that can fill our belly. We were created to seek for the word of God which also has the power to sustain our soul. Spirit teaches us. Third, the Spirit testifies. John 15, verses 16 and 17. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This is Jesus talking. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. 
Now, this may be one of the most important for the moment, for our church, one of the most important things to understand about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus, testifies about his person, about his work. Here's what we need to remember. Our God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, all equally God, yet differing in roles. So we affirm the Holy Spirit is God, but we do not talk about or sing to or pray to the Holy Spirit the same we would talk about, sing to, or pray to God. It's not the same. And when, rightly under, when we rightly understand the role of the Holy Spirit, we are saved from emphasizing the Holy Spirit's work in our lives over the other members of the Trinity. Because when people fall into this trap, they begin this fatal journey down the road. If they overemphasize the work of the Holy Spirit in their life and focus only on that, they, they start this fatal journey down the road of error, attempting to summon the Spirit or uh, to whip people up into a frenzy, calling on the Holy Spirit or arouse manifestations of the Spirit through you and through the lives of other people in the church. Well, this is false. And we must be on guard. We must guard our tendency to over-mystify the work of the Holy Spirit. This will protect us from error of placing unbiblical emphasis on the Holy Spirit that plagues so many churches today. And Jesus reminded his disciples that the Spirit will bring a testimony. And what will that testimony be? A testimony about him, about Jesus. Exalting him as Savior and pointing us to the hope we have in him constantly. So, if learning about Jesus is one of your favorite things to do, it's because the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your life. You're not better than the person sitting next to you. Just the thanks be to God. If you love your Bible, it's because the Holy Spirit is helping you love your Bible. If you cannot go a day without thanking God for all that he has accomplished for you through the person of Jesus Christ, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you cannot wait to walk through those doors and see your church and worship with them on a Sunday morning, it is because the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your life. It's not because you're more educated. It's not because you become better. It's not even because you have more confidence. It's because the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your life. If you're not as angry as you once were, this should resonate with everyone. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. If you are not responding in anger as much as you used to, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. If you are more patient, loving, peaceful, kind, faithful, gentle, self-controlled, all of this is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. If you have a confidence in your salvation, it's not because you're smart enough. It is because you hold fast to Christ because the Holy Spirit holds fast to you. That's what it's all about. Number four, the Spirit bears truth. John 16, verses 13 and 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Another verse, something that Jesus says is, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The Spirit bears truth. It's kind of a scandalous claim. We live in a day, and we've, you know, there's always been a day. I, I like when people, I've been trying to say that so I sound more mature. 
We live in a day. Back in the day, I remember. I don't remember much. But there's, it's always been a day where, you know, you're not supposed to say this is true or this is false. It's not really okay to say there is one thing that is absolutely true and there are other things that are absolutely false. It's not very popular. The world would say no one has the authority to say what is absolutely true or what is absolutely false. You can, and it can't happen. And people continue to believe in whatever the truth they feel, what they want, which will only fuel their desires. You see, we tell ourselves that there is no truth so we can do what we want. But you see, living, living this way, this way of living will not lead anyone to a better life. And I know these are hard discussions to have, but if you have people you care about, or friends or family or coworkers or loved ones or kids or parents, and you say, do whatever you want, like if you're happy, just go ahead and do it. And if you tell them there is no truth, you're not leading them to a better life. This way of living, this way of thinking will never lead them to the source of all truth, which is the word of God. This way of living will never help any human flourish, no matter where they're from on the globe, because it will not lead them to salvation. Believing whatever one wants is not living in freedom. We've gotten it twisted. Live your truth. Do what makes you happy. As long as you don't hurt anybody, do what you please. I'll stay over here. You stay over there. That is not good for our world. When we believe whatever we want, we actually spend all of our time justifying sinful actions. That's what we do. And then a few years pass and we are so far down the road, we can't even recognize truth from error any longer. Friends, church, to say truth exists is a dangerous statement to make. But it is a statement. It is a profession that will lead many people to salvation if they hear it. Because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, bears truth. It doesn't matter if you do not believe in sin. It does not matter if anyone does not believe in sin. If people say sin doesn't exist, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what they believe. It does not matter if people don't believe in Jesus as Savior or whether he existed at all. It doesn't matter if you don't believe in the judgment for sin. Because the truth is that sin does exist and God demands a payment. And for those who are not found under the blood of Jesus Christ through their faith and belief in him, they will face conscious eternal torment in hell. They will face the judgment of God for their sin. Talk about unpopular. You mean I'm going to be held accountable for what I do? Yes. And you're better than me because you're not? No. Not at all. So why are you so happy? Because I, Jesus saved me. What did you do? Nothing. I just believed. And I have faith. And their mind goes, they have no idea what to do with it. So now we realize this all makes more sense. This all makes more sense to us that Jesus could leave his disciples because he knew the spirit of truth would indwell them would abide in them, would teach them, would bear witness about him. The spirit of truth is within us. It's a powerful thing. And this means without the Holy Spirit, we would not be able to discern what is true and what is false. You and I, we'd, we'd, our minds would be scattered all over the place, frantically searching for where to land. 
as I said earlier, it's the truth which sets people free. And this is the truth, that all have sinned against a holy and righteous creator God. And all, all will face his righteous judgment. Everyone. Unless, unless people believe in the Savior, the one whom he sent into the world. The one who he sent to die for us while we were still sinning him, sinning against him and mocking him and nailing him to a cross. Unless we believe in the one who pays for our sins, that person is Jesus Christ. Everyone will stand before God. You will either be found under the blood of Jesus Christ or you'll be found a guilty sinner. The truth which sets people free is knowing and believing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Now, here's the second part. And this knowledge comes with a promise. It's the second part of the creed, and it's in those ascension verses. Number two, after the number one slash four, two. Jesus ascends with the promise to return and to righteously judge the living and the dead. This is sobering. This is a very sobering part of the sermon. And it's also a teaching that's so desperately needed. I needed to be reminded of this this week as I typed this out. Our world needs to be reminded of this. We, as the church, need to be reminded of this. Although the return of Jesus is a foreign idea to many people, even many Christians, this is an event we must long for and pray for. But you see, that comes with all sorts of mixed emotions, doesn't it? It really does. Because we wake up and we say, God, today's the day that the person I've been standing next to for 13 years is going to hear me out about Jesus. They're going to accept that lunch invitation. It's going to be fantastic. God, today's the day my wife or my husband or my kids or my brother or my sister is going to respond in faith. I've been praying for this day. I know it's coming. You see, in one time, in one hand, we pray for more time, don't we, to tell our loved ones, about Jesus. And on the other hand, we just need Jesus to return to make this all new again. Because if we go another day with another nasty news cycle about what's happening, we're just going to implode. There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of destruction. There's a lot of evil. And we see it like that now. We have full access to it every 20 seconds. 20-second news cycle of crisis, and it never ends. So we, we pray for more time. So Jesus, don't come back and judge sin because you, I, you got people here and I, I know this is the day. On the other hand, would you just come back? Not only are we ready to see, to see you face to face, we're ready to live in your kingdom when there is no, there are no tears, there's no murder, there's no abuse, there's no anger, there's no disease. We live in everlasting bodies, resurrected bodies, and so although many Christians long for Jesus to return, we actually, sometimes we forget to pray about that because we just need a bit more time. Friends, the whole story of the Bible is past, present, and future. The past is our sin and what God has done for us in and through the person of Jesus. That's our past. The present is how we are currently and actively responding to what God has done for us through Jesus. The future is our anticipation of the return of Jesus because his return will bring a new kingdom. So we do long for the return of Jesus Christ. The hope of the Christian is focused on this return. It should be focused on this return because it's the return of our king. 
who, when he returns, will finish the work God had sent him to do. And that is this. God had sent his son into the world to judge sin and establish his kingdom forever. Jesus talks about his return. I'm going to read a bit from Matthew chapter 25. Matthew, first book of your New Testament. You can write this down. Matthew 25. I'm not going to read all of it. Starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's a title for Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Later, verse 41 says this, and then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Friends, the day you stop praying for your friend or telling people about Jesus, go ahead and read this chapter. Because this should break your heart. Not that people are being judged unfairly, because if we think that, well, we really have minimized sin and we don't understand how bad we really are. Your sin is bad enough that the Son of God had to come and die for it. That's how bad it was. But when we get into these routines in life, when the hope and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ is not on our lips or in through our prayers, read this chapter about when our king returns. And for all those who have not bowed the knee to him, for all those who do not believe in who he was or believe in what he did for them, this is what they will face. Eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This should sober us up just a little bit, if not a lot. few years ago now, there's a group of people who wanted to start a church. And I would say, I don't think we ever spoke specifically about why we were starting a church. Well, kind of. We weren't really organized during the early years. But I will say the majority of people who set aside their time and their energy and their money to come to this place and start this church was because we believe hell was real. That's why. We believe that Sin will be judged. But see, don't you realize we also believe that there's salvation and grace through Jesus Christ? We believe that this is the only message worth talking about. We believe this message should dominate everyone's mind and heart. It should dominate everywhere. It should go out from every single person who calls himself Christian. You see, the first time Jesus came, he came as a savior and a redeemer to buy us back, to take our place. And his aim would be to save all those who would repent, which just means turn around, would turn from their sin and follow him. So some of you are like, I'm always hearing Christians say repent and ask for forgiveness. This drives me nuts. Well, let me tell you what it means. It means putting away your current state of life, recognizing that you are a sinner before God and following Jesus Christ. That's what it means. It means not doing the things that you were doing because they're sinful. And God doesn't like them. You might like them. I mean, we all like it for like a day, right? And then it gets real bad. Sin's so deceiving. 
It means to repent, to turn around and walk the other way. So this is what Jesus' aim was. That's why he said, repent, the kingdom of God is here. He came to initiate the kingdom of God and say, you turn from your sin, you follow me, you embrace me, you'll be saved. When he first came, he was born to a poor young family who wrapped him in swaddling clothes. This is God in the flesh who was born in a manger. When he came the first time, he came in humility. The Bible says there was no majesty and there was no beauty that people would desire him. He didn't come on a camel or on a horse announcing his kingdom. Well, he kind of did, but that was a donkey, but that was later. I'm talking about there was no parade, right? He wasn't a rich man. He came in humility. But friends, listen, the second time he comes, he will return as the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord of all creation. He will come as the one, to one whom every knee shall bow. He will come as the one whom every tongue will confess as Lord. He will come to judge the sins of every person. And we must be reminded that no one will escape this judgment. So either you be righteously judged as a forgiven child of God, covered in the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ, or you will be righteously judged as a condemned sinner, one who will face eternal judgment in hell. You'd have to be pretty cold-hearted to understand this message and never say a word about it. I know some of us go, I just don't know how. That's fine. I just don't know when. I get you. I just don't know how far deep I go. I understand that. It takes sacrifice. It takes worth being shamed a little bit to speak about Jesus. It takes people looking at you going, what? Jesus? Like the guy in the movies? The guy in the painting? I mean, he's everywhere. That's the guy you guys worship? Yeah. And you read this book that's really old? Yeah. And you believe every word of it? Even the weird stuff? Yeah. Even the weird stuff. You see, it's going to take you stepping into a situation where people look at you funny, and a lot of us are not willing to give that up. Let me tell you what's a really easy way to start. It doesn't take much to get on your knees in a quiet place and pray for the salvation of the people you love. That doesn't take much. You know what that takes? It takes putting your phone down, turning the TV off. It takes you slowing your life down a little bit and caring for someone other besides yourself. That's a great start for everybody. Friends, I know that this is such a sobering te- uh, thing to talk about, but it's here, and I swear if we embrace it, it's gonna change the way you pray for, think about, and talk to people. It's gonna pray for the way the message goes out from this building and to which nations we send people to and to what communities we send people to because this is a universal thing. This goes for everyone of all places, all tongues, and all tribes needs to hear this message. So now we remember. Maybe we've been reminded of how important it is to invite someone to hear this message, how important it is to invite someone to church. And here's the deal. You're going to invite 400 people. One person's going to show up. That's just the way it goes. It's tiring. We get it. We got invite cards on the back table. You grab 200 of those suckers and hand them out to every person you know. Or my strategy is to hand it out to the same person one a day, every day. <laughs> till they finally get sick of them. And they can't throw enough of them away because then you'll see them. They'll, you know, like I can't throw that away. They already know I threw the other ones away. But we should not get sick of inviting people in to hear this message. Because why? Jesus is coming back. 
In the same way he went up, he's coming back. Jesus is coming to claim his church, the people he has bought with his blood. Now, we do not know the day or the hour of his return. And Jesus himself said he didn't know the hour or the day. God the Father knows. He's just waiting and he's preparing. But he will return in glory and in power and in majesty to once and for all defeat Satan, defeat the power of sin, and defeat death for all eternity. That's what he's going to do. When he returns, it's not going to be a great day for those who oppose the kingdom. It's not going to be a great day for those who do not worship him. John, who was a disciple of Jesus Christ, he writes the Gospel of John. He also writes the last book of the Bible called Revelation. That's what he writes. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his enemy. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in, it, who in its presence had done many signs by which deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown into, um, sorry, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Some read this and think, my goodness, just chill for a minute. That's, that's, a, that's heavy. Is this all really necessary? Yes. Because sin is that bad. Sin is that bad. And that means we have a really amazing Savior. Amen? He saved me. Another reason why this is necessary is because human justice has always been and always will be limited. You can only do so much. Our systems of justice cannot possibly provide perfect, holy justice for all the evils of the world. We're never going to come to that point. The perfect judgment of sin and wickedness will only come when Jesus returns to perfectly judge, both righteously and perfectly, perfectly judge. I said that twice, sorry. Here's a quote from Albert Muller. He's a guy who wrote a book called The Apostles' Creed, one of the few books I've been digesting as we worked our way through The Apostles' Creed. 
He says, this means Jesus' judgment will be so perfect that all those who are judged, whether declared righteous through Jesus or not, will agree with the righteous judgment. That's powerful. There won't even be any but ands, but, but I. They'll just know it. Sinners will know when they see the glory of God and the person of Jesus. They're going to know. I'm guilty. Dr. Mueller says it's like a dual justice. Perfect justice points to dual destinies. The sinful offender will receive exactly what is owed, and the offended son of God will receive his glory. Isn't that amazing? If you're a sinner, you're going to receive exactly what you're owed. But if you're not, Jesus gets the glory, not you. I know some of you are bummed. That's why we say all the glory is to God, right? Wasn't that Adam's prayer this morning for our worship? All the glory goes back to God for our life. We didn't do anything for it. We don't deserve the praise for becoming a Christian. Who deserves that praise? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone. Those who have not repented of their sin and therefore have not received the promise of salvation will be judged and separated from God for all eternity. Those who are saved. You see, the church will be judged and found blameless and Jesus will get all the glory for that saving work. That's our future. You see, this is our hope in the darkest day, that Jesus is going to return and we will see him face to face. But hear this, apart from the grace of God in your life, apart from the gospel, you would face this judgment. You would face the wrath of King Jesus and the horse and the sword and all of it. That's the good news about this message, that it's all by grace you have been saved through faith. You see, the church doesn't go out to the ends of the earth and say, do this list of 10 things, and if they're all done according to our standard, I think God loves you enough to be saved. I'm not certain. We never really be certain, but we'll put our stamp of approval on it. We don't teach that. We don't teach you have to look a certain way or smell a certain way or talk a certain way to be saved. What is the Christian message? That we are saved by God's grace through our faith that we place in Jesus Christ our active belief, that we believe in who he is and what he did in our place, and that we believe we are sinners, and that if we were to die right now, we'd stand before God guilty, guilty, not blameless. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the towering mountains of your sin are buried in the deepest oceans of God's grace. Stephen Lawson, he's a pastor and author, that's what he said. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the towering mountains of your sin are buried in the deepest oceans of God's grace. You see, some of you don't even want to come to church because of the week that you've had. You're a Christian. You feel like, oh man, I messed up so many times. Do I really show my face? Do I really do that? You see how quickly we want to be perfect before God based on what we do? It's false. It's demonic. It's wrong. The towering mountains of your sin. <clears throat> it's not a hill. It's a mountain. Because you guys are that bad. I know, right? I'm the pastor. I'm really bad. Like horribly bad. I don't have a hill. Uh, an, what do they call them? An anthill? I don't have a little hill of sin. I have a mountain of sin in my life. And you know what gets me up every single day? Is to know that the towering mountains of my sin are buried in the deepest oceans of God's grace. This is why the gospel message is for all of the world. Not Portage, not Kalamazoo, not Michigan, 
not these United States, but the globe. Because all have sinned. And no sinner will ever save themselves. No sinner will ever be able to survive the judgment. And this means you, you won't even have the tools you need to survive the judgment. No one will survive the judgment. That means you have to be acquitted. You have to be saved. You have to come under the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ because he is our substitute, which means he took our place. He is our defender, which means he pleads our cause before God, and he is our judge, the one who speaks the final verdict. And I desire it in your life to be saved, blameless, not guilty. Each time a sinner repents and receives the forgiveness Jesus offers, remember this, they are no longer judged as guilty, but innocent before God. It's powerful. I'm going to read the creed and then we're going to pray. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic means universal church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen?